Hello and welcome. My name is Tenzin Tarpa, and I'll be reading from my short text, Secular Buddhism, which serves as the foundation of my Skillful Living series. You can download a print copy of this text and many others from my website at TenzinTarpa.com. And just a reminder that although my work is free, as a Buddhist monk, I do rely on donations to sustain myself and my work. So, if you find my writing of value, consider making a donation at my website. Secular Buddhism by Venerable Tenzin Tarpa Introduction to Buddhism Before we begin to explore secular Buddhism, let's first take a moment to understand Buddhism in its broader and more traditional context. Although labeled a religion, Buddhism occupies a unique place in the history of ideologies. Being non-theistic and not based upon a creator God, many believe Buddhism isn't a religion at all, but instead a philosophy or way of life. Some see Buddhism as a transcendental path of peace, others as a rational and practical science of the mind. Then there are those who see it as a path of mysticism and magic. However, according to the Buddha, quote, My teaching is not a philosophy. It is the result of my own direct experience. My teaching is a means of practice, not something to hold on to or to be worshipped. My teaching is like a raft used across a river. Only a fool would continue to carry the raft around after already reaching the other shore of liberation. End quote, the Buddha. Here the Buddha asserts his teachings not as a religion or philosophy, but as a dharma, meaning a practice path and way of life, a holistic and rational method of personal cultivation aimed at improving our minds and hearts within our current life situation. However, with that said, traditional Buddhism, as practiced in our current age, is certainly practiced as a religion, sharing many traits found in all religious traditions. A mystical cosmology, a belief in supernatural beings, heavens, hells, miracles, and magic, and often filled with the same dogma and hierarchical authority that categorize most religions. The teachings of the Buddha, referred to as Dharma or Buddha Dharma, are not the words of a god, gods, or prophet, but instead the words of a man, and pertain to his direct experience of the true nature of reality. The Buddha's teachings are based on an experience that he had achieved through great effort, that laid at the end of a long search, a search for the answer to one question, what is the cause of our suffering? The answer he found was that the cause of our suffering was not a physical or material one, nor can it be attributed to the supernatural. He found that the root cause of our suffering is psychological in nature, that we see ourselves and our reality in a mistaken way, which in turn leads to a distorted view of what we truly want, and consequently in how we invest our time and energy. But more importantly, he discovered that this unhealthy psychological condition can be removed, and liberation from suffering is possible. The Buddha's teachings and methodology for liberating us from suffering is referred to as the Buddha's path, a path of spiritual and mental cultivation that utilizes study and practice to awaken, meaning 
to realize the true nature of reality. A realization that frees us from mundane and habitual mental states, mental afflictions, and mistaken views. According to the Buddha, awakening, also known as enlightenment or liberation, is the true purpose and consummation of life. Awakening is to awaken from our delusions and limitations, and awaken to our true potential, true value, and true nature. When I'm asked, what is Buddhism? My short answer is, Buddhism is the path to freedom. Although Buddhists work diligently to preserve and make the Buddhist teachings available, Buddhists don't evangelize or try to convert others. Buddhism isn't a movement that one has to join, but instead a resource of practical wisdom and methods that can be utilized by anyone in whatever capacity they see fit. His Holiness the Dalai Lama often advises those interested in Buddhism to remain within their own belief system while investigating to see if Buddhism may have some ideas and methods that prove useful, emphasizing the benefits of stability and support maintained by remaining in one's own familiar tradition. According to His Holiness, quote, Don't use Buddhism to become a Buddhist. Use Buddhism to become better at whatever else in your life you're already doing, end quote, the Dalai Lama. The Origins of Buddhism The traditional Buddhist account of its origins begins with the birth of a young boy, Siddhartha Gautama, in the 6th century BCE. Born a prince of the Sakya clan in what is today's Lumbini, Nepal, near the Indian border, Young Siddhartha was prophesied to become either a great king or a great spiritual leader. His father, determined to see his son succeed him as king, surrounded the prince with worldly pleasures while forbidding him from leaving the palace grounds, in order to keep Siddhartha from seeing anything that would lead him towards a spiritual path. Despite his father's efforts, as Siddhartha grew into a young man, the king was unable to keep him within the palace walls. On several occasions, Siddhartha ventured outside the palace and experienced what in Buddhist literature is known as the Four Sights. Here, for the first time, Siddhartha saw the suffering of the world in the form of an old man, a sick man, a corpse, and a wandering ascetic who seemed to be at peace with the world. Overwhelmed by what he saw, a great determination to find the answer to the suffering of the world arose within the prince, compelling him, at the age of 29, to leave his family and life of pleasure. Upon leaving the palace, he cut off his princely hair, put on ragged robes, and joined a group of wandering ascetics. It said that Siddhartha was a man of enormous self-discipline, who quickly surpassed all his teachers, thoroughly mastering all of the spiritual practices of the day. This included fasting so intense that one day, while attempting to touch his stomach, he actually took hold of his spine. However, Siddhartha began to realize that these practices of extreme asceticism didn't lead to the cessation of suffering but instead only made him suffer more, and as a result, he rejected them. This realization would become the catalyst for his middle-way philosophy, 
a path of moderation and balance, lying between the extremes of self-indulgence and self-mortification, or more importantly, a path of moderation between extreme views. At this point, Siddhartha began to practice on his own, based on a recollection of an experience he had as a young boy. It was during a royal outing when he wandered away from his group and took shelter from the hot summer sun under a rose apple tree. As he sat, his thoughts subsided and he spontaneously entered a state of blissful meditation, experiencing a naturally arising calm and clear awareness. This experience from his youth would become the compass that set the direction of his new path a path based on moderation, which saw a healthy mind and body as essentials for success. His practice finally came to fruition on the evening of a full moon while sitting in meditation under a bodhi tree or fig tree in today's Bodhgaya, India. It was on this night that Siddhartha made the decision not to rise again from his meditation until he had found the answer to the question that began his quest. What is the cause of suffering? Subsequently, Siddhartha, while deep in meditation, conquered the last remnants of his worldly afflictions, and by shaking off the dull and dreamlike delusions of ordinary awareness, attained enlightenment and arose as the Buddha, the awakened one. Siddhartha had become a Buddha, or more specifically, he had become Shakyamuni Buddha, sage of the Sakya clan the historic Buddha of our current age. It's told that after his awakening, the Buddha spent the next few weeks in a state of unwavering bliss. The Buddha then traveled north to an area that is today's Sarnath, India, near the city of Varanasi. It is there at a deer park in front of his first five disciples that the Buddha delivered his most important teachings, entitled The Four Noble Truths. Within these teachings, the Buddha shared the experience and knowledge that emerged from his awakening. This first teaching remains as the foundation for all Buddhist thought and is said to encompass all of the Buddha's wisdom. The Buddha then spent the next 45 years traveling throughout India teaching his path of awakening. According to scriptures, the Buddha, at the age of 80, when he believed his work to be finished, passed away in a small remote village of Kushinagar, northeast India. The Buddha refused to appoint a successor, and when asked by his monks, Who will lead us when you are gone? The Buddha answered, Whatever doctrine and discipline taught and made known by me will be your teacher when I am gone. By this, the Buddha held his teachings as the ultimate source of authority within the Buddhist tradition. The Historical Account of the Buddha's Life Historically, although records of this period in Indian history are ambiguous at best, and although there's no actual proof of the Buddha's existence, it seems reasonable to think that the Buddha, as a historical figure in Indian history, did exist. In addition, the scriptural accounts of the Buddha's life also seem quite plausible, although some see his life story as metaphor. For in India, stories in which great rulers who abandon lives of extravagance in the pursuit of salvation are legendary. 
Scriptural accounts of what the Buddha may have been like as a person are few. Some accounts posit the Buddha as a protester or radical, rebelling against the religious corruption of the day, while other scriptural sources posit him as a promoter of peace and cooperation between these groups. With that said, all accounts agree upon a depiction of the Buddha as cool-headed, self-disciplined, extraordinarily wise, and deeply compassionate. It said that the Buddha and his teachings resonated so strongly with people that many became followers almost immediately upon hearing him speak. His diligence as a teacher was renowned with accounts that during the 45 years after his awakening, the Buddha taught day and night, sleeping as little as two hours an evening. The most agreed-upon opinion regarding the Buddha's death is that at the age of 80, after eating a meal of pork given to him by a sponsor, he fell ill and died of food poisoning in Kushinagar, northeast India. What is a Buddha? Traditional Buddhism asserts a Buddha as a fully awakened being who has perfected all possible virtuous qualities, and in so doing is freed from the endless cycle of rebirth and the suffering that entails. The term Buddha is not a name, but a title, meaning awakened one. One who is awakened from ordinary, mundane existence and reached the very pinnacle of spiritual evolution, clearly apprehending the true nature of reality. A Buddha is asserted as a miraculous being who is said to possess a vast array of supramundane powers, including omniscience, clairvoyance, telepathy, seeing both past and future lives, and the ability to perform a wide range of miracles. Buddhism posits not one but many Buddhas, with future Buddhas to come. One story that gives some insight into what the Buddha thought of his own attainment is an account of the Buddha being questioned by some herdsmen. Herdsmen, are you a god? No, the Buddha answers. Are you a prophet? No, the Buddha answers. Are you a teacher? No, the Buddha answers. What are you then? I'm awakened. What the Buddha taught. Quote, Do no evil. Cultivate only good, purify your mind. This is the teachings of the Buddhas. End quote, the Buddha. The Buddha's teachings were built upon thousands of years of previous Indian thought, with the belief of enlightenment, rebirth, and karma already in place long before his arrival. What was different was what the Buddha had found, a mental state of awakening he called nirvana. According to the Buddha, this state was not mere hypothesis, but something he experienced directly for himself, an experience that changed him forever. When asked to describe this enlightened state, he would insist that its nature could not be conveyed by language, but instead needed to be experienced directly for oneself. When pressed, the Buddha would simply say, Nirvana is the end of suffering. It said that the Buddha, when inviting people to hear his teachings, would use the phrase episeko, meaning come and investigate. For the Buddha believed that the true test of his teachings was through one's own examination and experience of them, 
or in the Buddha's own words, the truth must be known for oneself. The Buddha in his own day advocated mental and emotional development, not prayer and worship. He substituted ethics for ritual and condemned all forms of divination and soothsaying. In fact, the further back and closer to the Buddha's time one gets, the less religious his teachings appear. In these early teachings, we see Buddhism emerging as the world's first truly egalitarian social movement, founded on the Buddha's assertion that all beings, regardless of race, nationality, gender, or caste, had the same potential for spiritual development. At the heart of the Buddha's earliest teachings, the Buddha advocated benevolence, wisdom, altruism, compassion, nonviolence, honesty, friendliness, self-control, personal responsibility, selflessness, and humility, while abandoning ignorance, delusion, hatred, and greed. The Buddha seen as a physician. Often referring to himself as a physician or healer, the Buddha had a clear and practical focus to help people become healthy and whole to heal the minds and hearts of men. The Buddha's teachings focus on what is practical and therapeutic, or healing, a methodized treatment for the suffering that plagues human existence. The Buddha as Empiricist The Buddha had a very scientific approach to his investigation, rejecting superstition and beliefs that supernatural forces had any control over our lives. He advocated understanding by way of analysis, reason, and experience, urging his followers to refuse to believe in anything without proper investigation. Today's Schools of Buddhist Thought Throughout Buddhist history, many different interpretations of the Buddhist teachings have been asserted. Over time, these different views have slowly developed into different traditions and schools of Buddhist thought. Some traditions possessing highly complex philosophical systems, while others believe the intellect to be a potential obstacle to the attainment of enlightenment. Some favor complex ritualistic practices, while others advocate great simplicity. Because of this, today we have a rich array of authentic forms of Buddhism to choose from. And despite their differences, all Buddhist traditions have a similar history. Namely, they all share the same teacher, the Buddha. They all originated in India, and they're all founded upon the Theravada Buddhist teachings. Today's world of Buddhist thought is comprised of two main traditions, the Theravada and the Mahayana. The Mahayana is a later tradition arising from and founded upon the Theravada. Therefore, both traditions share the same basic foundation and practices, including the study of the Buddha's teachings, meditation, mindfulness, contemplation, chanting, and the cultivation of wisdom and goodness. The Theravada Buddhist Tradition The Theravada is the oldest of the Buddhist traditions and is commonly asserted as a South Asian tradition. Theravadins see themselves as traditionalists, presenting and preserving a more conventional and historically accurate account of the Buddha and his teachings. The Theravada is deeply rooted in monasticism, 
believing it to be the most conducive lifestyle for achieving nirvana. The Mahayana Buddhist tradition. The Mahayana tradition arose from and is founded upon the Theravada tradition and shares a more mystical presentation of Buddhism. Today, Mahayana Buddhism no longer exists as a tradition in its own right, but instead serves as the scriptural and philosophical foundation for an assortment of later Buddhist traditions. These schools include the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and the East Asian traditions of Chan, Zen, and Pure Land Buddhism. The Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Tibetan Buddhism Although being a Mahayana school, it's set apart by its esoteric Vajrayana, or Tantric teachings, that utilize a vast array of mystical practices and techniques aimed at rapidly attaining awakening. Tibetan Buddhism is best known for its warmth and colorful style and its leader, the Dalai Lama. The East Asian Mahayana Traditions the Buddhism of East Asia is a complex and fascinating assortment of various Mahayana schools, representing the majority of Mahayana Buddhism in the world. Chan Buddhism A branch of the Mahayana tradition founded in China, Chan is often considered to be a combination of Indian Mahayana Buddhism and Chinese Taoism. Chen favors a more experiential approach, focused on the cultivation of direct insight into the nature of reality. It's said that this approach arose in opposition to Indian Buddhism's strong emphasis on scholastic philosophy. Zen Buddhism A branch of the Mahayana tradition founded in Japan, Zen is a later development of Chinese Chan Buddhism. Like Chan, Zen de-emphasizes mere knowledge of doctrine, favoring instead a more direct experiential understanding. It's said that the Zen is more interested in sitting with the question than knowing the answer. Some assert that the only difference between Zen and Chan is merely the pronunciation of the name. However, Zen differs in subtle ways. Pure Land Buddhism Pure Land Buddhism is one of the most popular Mahayana traditions in East Asia, focused on the Buddha Amitabha. This school believes that the attainment of enlightenment is no longer practical or even possible in our present era. Therefore, the goal of Pure Land practitioners is not enlightenment within this lifetime, but instead to be reborn and attain enlightenment in the Buddha's heaven realm, Sukhavati, the Western Pure Land. Pure Land Buddhism is known for its practice of accumulating mantra recitations of the Buddha Amitabha. Secular Buddhism Although not a tradition or distinct school, secular Buddhism is currently becoming a popular and valued approach to Buddhist thought. Secular Buddhism can be understood as an approach to the study and practice of the Buddha's teachings, aimed at clarifying and demystifying them by lifting them out of their presumed religious, mystical, or cultural context. Secular Buddhism, also known as Agnostic Buddhism, Neo-Buddhism, or Navayana Buddhism, 
can be understood as a more objective and rational approach to the Buddha's teachings, seeking to reinterpret them through fresh eyes, skeptical not of the Buddha's words, but of the thousands of years of interpretation and embellishment laden upon those teachings. Commonly seen as merely irreligious, secular Buddhism actually derives the scope of its thought from new interpretations of the earliest Buddhist teachings, popularly known as the EBTs. These early teachings are largely devoid of religious, ceremonial, and ritualistic elements, possessing a more open, fluid, and adaptive style. Teachings that reject religious authority, dogma, and absolutism. And, for those who may ask, where do secular Buddhists derive their authority? The answer is, from the Buddha himself. From, for the Buddha, in his own words, gives his assurance that our own logic, reason, and common sense are valid and reliable tools for discerning the truth for ourselves. Quote, Do not go upon what has been acquired by repeated hearing, nor upon tradition, nor upon rumor, nor upon what is in scripture, nor upon the consideration, this monk is our teacher. Rather, test ideas with your own common sense, and when you yourself know these teachings lead to benefit and happiness, adapt them. And if you yourself know they lead to harm or ill, abandon them. End quote. The Buddha. Quote, just as a goldsmith would test his gold by burning, cutting, and rubbing it, so must you examine my words before accepting them, but not merely out of reverence to me. End quote. The Buddha. Quote, that which is passed down by tradition may be learned well or learned badly. It may be true or it may be otherwise. Only if a spiritual life leads to the ending of suffering is it of true value. End quote. The Buddha. Quote, you are your own master. You make your own future. Therefore, discipline yourself as a horse dealer training a thoroughbred. End quote. The Buddha. Quote, oneself is refuge of oneself. Who else indeed could refuge be? By good training of oneself, one gains a refuge hard to gain. End quote. The Buddha. The term secular comes from the Latin seclium, meaning worldly, as opposed to religious. Secularism is often associated with the Age of Enlightenment movement of 18th century Europe a social and philosophical movement that advocated science, individualism, and reason with the objective of transforming society by liberating people from their dogmatic tyranny of the church and state, a movement that continues to play a crucial role in modern society. A clear example of the term secular is to imagine a town. In this town, the churches, temples, synagogues, and mosques are religious institutions, whereas the schools, libraries, and police and fire departments are secular institutions. In secular Buddhism, the term secular is understood twofold. First, as synonymous with non-sectarian, a non-partisan or impartial view open to various forms of Buddhist thought.
including non-Buddhist disciplines like science, philosophy, and psychology. Secondly, as an approach to the Buddha's teachings that de-emphasize its more religious, mystical, and cultural aspects. It's important to remember that secular Buddhism is not a set of specific beliefs or doctrine, nor is there any single group that represents it, meaning different secular teachers and groups can hold different views depending upon the spectrum between traditional and secular they find themselves. When explaining secular Buddhism to traditional Buddhists, I start by creating common ground, explaining that most of us have found assertions in the Buddhist scriptures that are simply too implausible to accept. Maybe it's the accounts of miracles performed by the Buddha, or the Buddha having conversations with the Hindu gods. Maybe it's the story of the Buddha teaching in the heaven realms to his deceased mother, or Buddha's birth in which he's born from his mother's side, and immediately takes several steps in each cardinal direction, with lotus flowers appearing at each step. There are also the descriptions of the Buddha as standing 20 feet tall, with arms that could touch his knees without bending down, possessing webbed fingers and toes, and a tongue large enough to cover his face. Whatever the case, most Buddhists have found a handful of scriptural assertions they can't rationally accept. Well, for secular Buddhists, our list is just a little longer. His Holiness the Dalai Lama has done much work in propagating secular Buddhism. In his best-selling book, Beyond Religion, His Holiness asserts that one doesn't have to be a religious or spiritual person to engage in Buddhism that Buddhism's science-like and philosophical approach, its strong focus on mental and emotional development, its unique methodology founded on the cultivation of logical ethics, and its many practical applications aimed at cultivating happiness and and fulfillment can benefit anyone. Quote, It's okay to study Buddhism secularly without studying it religiously, for creating mental discipline requires no faith commitment, end quote, the Dalai Lama. Quote, religion is useful to the spiritual life, but not indispensable, end quote, the Dalai Lama. Quote, the Buddha's teaching is that you are your own master. Everything depends on yourself, end quote, the Dalai Lama. Some hold reservations about secular Buddhism, seeing it as arrogant in believing it has the authority to present a unique view that may be contrary to the views of established traditions. Still others see secular Buddhism as heretical, believing it as an attempt to alter the Buddha's teachings to fit a modern perspective. However, in my experience, I find secular Buddhism to possess a very pure intention an approach that seeks to reinterpret the Buddha's teachings in order to uncover a clear and deeper understanding. With that said, secular Buddhism is not opposed to traditional forms of Buddhism. Rather, it feels indebted to them for their work in preserving and propagating the teachings. For myself, as a secular Buddhist teacher, I don't feel a need to defend my views or debate the views of others. 
Instead, I focus on prioritizing the aspects of the Buddhist teachings that I find most plausible, illuminating, and potentially fruitful. Those concepts that hold up to critical analysis and common sense. Those practices that have been proven to aid in the attainment of awakening. One example of this is Buddhism's assertion of rebirth. For myself, I accept the notion of rebirth as a belief, meaning I don't have first-hand knowledge of its validity. Therefore, within my work, I prioritize it accordingly and don't emphasize it within my own teachings. Alternatively, Achieving bliss and happiness is not a belief for me, but something I have experienced firsthand in my practice. Therefore, I prioritize it accordingly and emphasize it throughout my teachings. The benefit and need for reinterpreting Buddhist thought becomes obvious when realizing the wealth of new knowledge and methodology available. Never before have scholars been able to analyze and compare all of the Buddhist scriptures from the various traditions side by side in their traditional languages, or contrast them against new historical and archaeological findings. Then, of course, we have new methods and findings from science, psychology, and philosophy that are exciting new tools for investigating Buddhist thought. Quote, Do not be idolatrous about or bound to any doctrine, theory, or ideology, even Buddhist ones. All systems of thought are guiding means. They are not absolute truths. End quote. Thich Nhat Hanh. Quote, give up religion, give up Buddhism, go beyond Buddhism. Put the essential aspects of the philosophy in the scientific language. This is my aim. End quote. Lameyeshi. Quote, the Buddha advised his disciples to transmit his teachings in whatever form would be intelligible. He did not wish his followers to freeze his words in the sacred archaic language like that of the ancient Indian scriptures, the Vedas. End quote. Alexander Berzin. The truth is, modern Buddhism exists as many interpretations within many traditions. This is not our shortcoming, but our strength, that we as Buddhist practitioners bravely hold the Buddhist teachings open to continuous debate and examination, accepting nothing through blind faith, while always honoring our commitment to truth wherever it may lead us. This is a sign of a healthy teaching, in which it continues to adapt, grow, and spread, not merely geographically, but intellectually and experientially. Today, through skillful modern adaptation, the Buddha speaks with a fresh voice to new generations. Buddhist methodologies of meditation, mindfulness, and awakening have become mainstream concepts crossing cultural, religious, and secular boundaries. Due to this adaptation, Buddhism now encircles the globe, something that is unprecedented in Buddhist history, a fact that can be directly attributed to the propagation of more secular presentations.
Currently, secular Buddhism exists as an assortment of small groups that have arisen from the different Buddhist traditions. And although presenting unique views, the aim of secular Buddhism remains consistent with all forms of Buddhist thought, that of human flourishing leading to awakening. Quote, my wish is to prevent my students from approaching Buddhism as a religion per se, in which a supreme being of either human or ethereal nature is beseeched for help in worldly matters. In truth, I have given my best efforts in the objective of freeing myself from the trappings of religious administration. Frequently, religion produces fanaticism, which often results in the splitting of community and thus damages the integrity of a society. End quote. The 14th Galway Shamapa. Quote, like a scientist who tries to lose his attachment to science in the pursuit of truth, so should a Buddhist lose his attachment to Buddhism. Attachment brings bias. End quote. The Dalai Lama. Agnosticism and Secular Buddhism I believe that the agnostic view lies at the heart of the secular approach to Buddhism. Generally, agnosticism is understood in this religious context as a middle alternative between theism and atheism, asserting that the existence of God is unknowable and therefore not a subject of priority. The origins of agnosticism date back to ancient India, first found in the Rig Veda, and pertain to the unanswerable question of how the universe and the gods were created. Agnosticism was also a popular view in the Buddha's day. Today, agnosticism is understood in its broader scientific or secular context. The renowned physicist Richard Feynman sums up scientific agnosticism best. Quote, I have approximate answers and possible beliefs, and different degrees of certainty about different things, but I'm not absolutely sure about anything. End quote. This scientific and secular usage of the term is based on a perspective that understands the contingent and tentative nature of knowledge, that other than trivial facts, knowledge and information are fragile, ever-changing, and often deeply subjective. According to Socrates, quote, True wisdom comes to each of us when we realize how little we understand about life, ourselves, and the world around us, end quote. The fact is, all human knowledge, be it science, philosophy, psychology, or industry, is in a state of constant evolution, striving for greater levels of clarity and understanding. As we mature, our knowledge and wisdom evolves, with current views and information being replaced by ever more complex and precise knowledge. Agnosticism, while fully embracing the crucial endeavor of understanding ourselves, our environment, and reality, also accepts and embraces the mystery and uncertainty of our existence. No matter how much understanding we gain, there will always be aspects of life that still remain unknown. Quote, the deeper and broader I study, the more agnostic I become. It seems all wisdom converges in agnosticism, end quote. Venerable Tenzin Tarpa.
The view of agnosticism possesses a healthy skepticism that emphasizes the important distinction between believing and knowing, while recognizing that our fear of the unknown, that which drives our hunger for absolute answers, is one of the greatest obstacles to finding harmony within our lives. To acknowledge that what we don't know is deeply healing and brings about a natural humility. A humility that is in awe of the infinite possibilities of life and all that lies still waiting to be discovered. Quote, all believers, by definition, must be agnostic. The moment you declare that you believe in God or the law of karma, you are acknowledging that you don't know whether they exist or not. For if you did know, you'd have no need to believe. Only fools, fanatics, and omniscient beings would claim to know such things. End quote. Stephen Batchelor. Spirituality and Secular Buddhism. Quote, whether or not enlightenment is a plausible goal for us is a vital question for our lives. If it is possible for us to attain such enlightenment ourselves, our whole sense of meaning of our place in the universe immediately changes. To be open to the possibility is to be a spiritual seeker, no matter what our religion. Enlightenment is not meant to be an object of religious faith. It's an evolutionary goal. End quote. Robert Thurman. The terms spiritual and spirituality are not always clear. Traditionally, they've been seen as synonymous with religious. However, today, they're often used to assert the opposite. The adherence to a spiritual philosophy without adherence to a religion. Obviously, the term pertains to spirit but this term also can be equally ambiguous. Within religion, spirit is synonymous with soul, essential essence, animating force, or consciousness itself. The secular usage of the word often pertains to temperament or disposition, as in a spirited child. For myself, I define spirit as our will, determination, vigor, or spirit towards life, as in the loss broke their spirit. I think the best way of understanding the term spirituality is to define a spiritual person. A spiritual person is someone who embraces many of the tenets of religion, which may or may not include a belief in a higher power, God, universal consciousness, or the mystical, while at the same time rejecting the dogma, hierarchy, authority, and absolutism of traditional religion. Spiritual people often assert their view with the popular axiom, I'm spiritual, but not religious. The spiritual tend to be guided by intuition, leaning more towards agnosticism, embracing the mystery and wonder of their existence without a need to hold strict beliefs or views. Like religion, spirituality pertains to the discovery and understanding the nature of our existence. According to the Dalai Lama, quote, clearly spirituality is a component of all of the religious traditions. However, religion is not necessarily a requirement of the spiritual person, end quote. In other words, spirituality is a larger and more encompassing term. 
The human dimension of spirituality is what recognizes our sense and connection to something greater than ourselves. It's the realization and acceptance that what we understand about ourselves and our lives is but a fraction of the whole. Spirituality encompasses our sense of connection and belonging, of purpose, of self-awareness, of care and respect for oneself and others, while embracing the qualities of benevolence, wholesomeness, righteousness, meaning, and community. Principles and Beliefs of Secular Buddhism Quote, I see Buddhism as a constantly evolving culture of awakening rather than a religious system. End quote. Stephen Batchelor. All schools of Buddhist thought, including secular Buddhism, share the same basic aim of awakening. Equally, all Buddhist schools of thought share the same basic tenets and values. However, it's in the pursuit of these aims and values that differences arise. Here, I'd like to share those principles that differentiate secular Buddhism from traditional Buddhism. Principles held by secular Buddhism. Remember that different secular Buddhist teachers and groups emphasize or de-emphasize different aspects of the Buddhist teachings. With that said, here's a list of common principles that many secular Buddhist groups may share. Generally, secular Buddhism is agnostic embracing the mystery, but not the mystical. Secular Buddhism is egalitarian, open to everyone, regardless of view. Secular Buddhism recognizes the broad range of different minds of individuals. Secular Buddhism respects the intelligence and views of the individual. Secular Buddhism respects the individual's role in determining their own path. Secular Buddhism sees awakening as personal and unique to each person. Secular Buddhism emphasizes a naturalistic view within a natural universe. Secular Buddhism does not emphasize traditional Buddhist cosmology. Secular Buddhism does not emphasize heavens, hells, pure lands, or realms of existence. Secular Buddhism does not emphasize God, deities, mystical beings, ghosts, or demons. Secular Buddhism does not emphasize miracles or supernatural powers. Secular Buddhism does not emphasize otherworldly assistance or blessing. Secular Buddhism does not emphasize the transference of merit or earned goodness. Secular Buddhism does not emphasize the Buddhist teachings as infallible. Secular Buddhism does not emphasize the Buddha as omniscient or all-knowing. Secular Buddhism does not emphasize spiritual or religious authority. Secular Buddhism does not emphasize the concept of lineage of Buddhist traditions. Secular Buddhism emphasizes karma as cause and effect pertaining to sentient life. Secular Buddhism humanizes the teacher, moving away from the concept of gurus. Some secular Buddhists believe in rebirth, while many do not. When secular Buddhism goes too far. In some circles, the secular ideal towards Buddhism can be taken to the extreme. A view that rejects all later Buddhist developments anything deemed not empirical or anything not currently understood. 
This often includes the outright rejection of any rites, ritual, ceremony, symbolism, or customs. Personally, I believe it's a mistake to deny the significance of Buddhism's long and rich history, its culture, and its experiential wisdom. Only the foolish blindly reject. The wise scrutinize with a skeptical but not cynical eye, possessing a humility that is open to new discovery and new ways of looking at things. Secular Buddhism and Practice Generally, secular Buddhism engages in the same core practices as traditional Buddhism, namely the practices of ethics, generosity, loving-kindness, meditation, mindfulness, introspection, and contemplation. Practices focused on the cultivation of insight, compassion, understanding, and mental and emotional stability. This includes the lessening of reactivity, ignorance, delusion, greed, hatred, and self-centeredness. Secular Buddhism shares the traditional emphasis on the Buddha's Four Noble Truths and Eightfold Path, but moves away from traditional rites, rituals, and ceremony. My own story, how I became a secular Buddhist monastic. Like many, I started my Buddhist path with romanticized visions of mystical experiences and esoteric knowledge, meaning I was a believer, one who had dove headfirst into the path. Although I was captivated by the idea of becoming a monk from the very first Buddhist books I'd read, it took me 15 years to rise above dissuasive voices to follow my heart and take the plunge. So, I took a year, worked every waking moment of those 365 days, sold everything I owned, and bought a one-way ticket to Dharamsala, India. During my first year in North India, I taught English and made many wonderful monastic friends who helped facilitate my ordination. The timing of my arrival was fortunate arriving just in time to apply and be accepted into the Dalai Lama's ordination program. After a remarkable ordination experience, I was sent to South India to begin my formal monastic education within the legendary Tibetan Buddhist monasteries. My aim was to become an accomplished tantric or mystical practitioner, so at first I was hesitant of the long monastic sutra, or conventional, studies before me. I remember thinking, if Tantra is the fastest path to enlightenment, then why would anyone waste 10 or 20 years studying Sutra first? Nevertheless, I was determined to get a proper monastic education, so I followed the prescribed study plan. The curriculum was referred to as the Path of Reason, and included studies in Buddhist philosophy and dialectic debate. It was here that I began to truly embrace logic and reason. Curiously, it was this path of reason that created the objectivity and clarity which would later lead me to secular Buddhism. Other catalysts included my teacher, the Dalai Lama, who, in his best-selling book, Beyond Religion, gives his approval and encouragement to those wishing to engage Buddhism in a more secular manner. The other catalyst being the writings of the father of modern secular Buddhism, Stephen Batchelor, 
whose books I had to hide in my room at the monastery to avoid the scorn of the other monks. As with many Western practitioners, I possessed a broad range of interests and knowledge. I had begun my path in the Zen Buddhist tradition. However, it was the warmth, joy, and mysticism of Tibetan Buddhism that magnetized me. Throughout the years, I have studied and been intrigued by all of the various forms of Buddhism, both Sanskrit and Pali traditions alike. But it was my monastic education that became the turning point in my path, for which I will forever be grateful. It was the skills of reason and logic that I had learned in the monasteries that allowed me to see beyond the traditional views I had been taught. I pondered if this had been the meaning behind the Buddha's antidote of the foolish person who, after arriving on the other shore of liberation, continues to carry the raft around. Was fruition of the path marked by the expansion of one's perspective beyond the boundaries and safety of one's own tradition? Although this new expansive view began while I was in the monastery, the process accelerated when I began to re-enter the world. After enduring ten long years of study in the monasteries, I had the idea of capping off my education by undertaking a year-long pilgrimage of Buddhist Asia, armed only with my alms bowl, a second set of robes, and my trusty laptop for writing. This would allow me to experience firsthand all of the various traditions I had long studied, while also gaining research for books I was writing on monasticism and meditation. During my pilgrimages, I've had the opportunity to stay in and experience over 60 monasteries and communities of all of the Buddhist traditions in all of the Buddhist countries, including many non-Buddhist communities as well. As I continued to travel and teach, I ran across an increasing number of people who were strongly drawn to the practical wisdom of the Buddha's teachings, but not interested in joining a religion or exotic belief system. Those who often felt disaffected by the more religious and cultural presentations of Buddhism they had encountered. People who were clearly unrepresented within the larger Buddhist community. Their feelings of alienation were equally true for myself, for from the first Dharma center I entered, I struggled to relate to the rites, ritual, and symbolism I encountered, a feeling that remains with me to this day. As I continued to travel, I was repeatedly asked if I could create some literature on my progressive thoughts on the Buddha's teachings. This led me to dedicating my life and work to champion a more inclusive and secular presentation of the Buddhist teachings. My Secular Buddhist View My own view lies on a spectrum between Tibetan and secular Buddhism, a perspective that is strongly agnostic, maintaining a balance between my direct experience of the truth and benefits of the Buddha's teachings and my acceptance of the mystery of life, an approach that embraces the time-honored Buddhist tradition of open and continuous investigation. Although secular in nature, my view is generally in line with the basic framework of traditional Buddhism namely the Four Noble Truths, Virtuous Ethics, and the Cultivation of Wisdom and Altruism. 
However, it differs in its move away from religious authority, dogma, absolutism, and the more religious, mystical, and cultural content presented in traditional Buddhism. I remain open to all forms of Buddhist thought and non-Buddhist disciplines as well, including science, philosophy, and psychology, while maintaining an enduring appreciation for the countless masters who have contributed to our world of Buddhist thought. In my teachings, I present the Buddha's Dharma as neither a religion or an exotic belief system. I share a grounded presentation that focuses on the positive, life-affirming message of the Buddha, while prioritizing those concepts that seem most plausible, illuminating, and potentially fruitful. Those aspects of practice that hold up to critical analysis, common sense, and are proven to aid in awakening. My aim is to inform and to guide without sharing presumptions of what to believe, acknowledging the broad range of individuals and minds, while respecting the individual's role in determining their own path. Q&A. Questions, answers, and requested advice by practitioners. Question. What aspects of the Buddha's teachings are rejected, and who decides? Answer. This is something that each teacher and group decides for themselves. Personally, I try not to reject anything. Instead, I emphasize the aspects of the teachings that I find most probable, illuminating, and potentially fruitful, and then prioritize them within my teachings. The Buddha prioritized his own teachings in the same way, by focusing on what's practical while moving away from conjecture prioritizing those studies and practices that are the most skillful at leading students to awakening. Question. How does secular Buddhism assert the Buddha? Answer. Generally, secular Buddhist teachers assert Siddhartha Gautama, the historical Buddha, as an extraordinary human being or sage, and disregard ideas of him being a god, deity, prophet, or supernatural in any way. The Buddha is understood within the historical period in which he was believed to exist, seen as an Indian guru who found a path that transcends mundane existence and the suffering that it entails. One who has attained the very peak of spiritual evolution and awakened to the true nature of reality. Question. How does secular Buddhism assert enlightenment? Answer. Enlightenment, awakening, or nirvana have always been complicated topics to explain in all of the various traditions of Buddhism. Generally, secular Buddhist teachers have different and often agnostic views on enlightenment. For myself, I see enlightenment as a transcendent state of mind, gained through the incremental purification of one's perspective. I don't see enlightenment in the traditional binary sense of enlightenment versus non-enlightenment, but instead as an incremental process of awakening. I see enlightenment as representing one end of our spectrum of evolution, and ignorance and delusion at the other. I'm skeptical of the notion of a finite level of enlightenment, believing sentient life always has the capacity to develop further. Question. Don't you have to believe in rebirth to be a Buddhist? Answer. 
Secular Buddhists hold different views on rebirth. Many outright reject the idea. Others are agnostic on the topic, and some hold it as a personal belief. I'm often asked by those who have trouble accepting the idea of rebirth if their doubts preclude them from engaging with Buddhism. And the answer is no. A belief in rebirth is not required. With that said, many Buddhists and non-Buddhists alike hold the notion of rebirth as a reasonable hypothesis. Based on the fact that virtually everything in the universe possesses a cyclical nature. Galaxies, stars, planets all move and exist cyclically in an endless cycle of formation, abiding, and destruction. Our world functions as a collection of cyclical systems. Humanity as a species can be seen as existing cyclically through its reliance on the continuous birth of new members for its survival. Then there's a law of the conservation of energy, which asserts that within any universe, nothing, neither energy nor mass, is ever gained or lost, meaning energy can neither be created nor destroyed. Rather, it transforms from one form to another. As for myself, I currently hold a belief in rebirth, because in a cyclical universe in which everything is continuously reprocessed, it's hard to believe that the consciousness of sentient life is the one and only thing that ceases. Question. Is there a single pure presentation of the Buddha's teachings? Answer. To try to assert a single best or purest tradition of Buddhist thought is to misunderstand the very nature of Buddhism. The diversity in today's Buddhist traditions is a natural, beneficial, and proper response to its assimilation into other cultures. Clearly, there is such a thing as authentic Buddhism, consisting of the core teachings of the Buddha, such as the Four Noble Truths, Dependent Origination, No Self, etc., but even within the most conservative traditions, you'll find numerous interpretations of what masters believe the Buddha to have meant. Question. How can you be a secular Buddhist if you're a Tibetan Buddhist monk? Answer. Being a monastic, a renunciant holding vows of training in the Buddha's Vinaya system, is not a philosophical position. This becomes obvious when understanding that each of the different monastic traditions holds very different philosophical views. Therefore, monasticism is my chosen training, practice, and path, while a secular interpretation of the Buddha's teachings is my philosophical approach and view. Question. If you're truly a secular Buddhist, why not renounce your monk robes and title? Answer. It's a personal choice to become a monastic and undergo monastic training. And equally, it's a personal choice to give them up. My robes are practical and serve various purposes. Besides liberating me from the daily concerns of clothing and style, robes are a uniform. And like all uniforms, they communicate to others my profession, beliefs, and intentions. My robes inform others that I'm someone that they can come to for assistance, guidance, or protection. 
Ideally, my robe should communicate benevolence, humility, honesty, selflessness, renunciation, and excellence in study and practice. My title is also used to communicate to others. The title Venerable is bestowed upon fully ordained monastics, which distinguishes them from novice monastics still in training. This is similar to the title MD or Doctor, which assures patients that they have completed their training and are qualified to practice medicine. Important Notes If difficulties in your practice persist, it's always a good idea to seek additional one-on-one -on -one advice from a qualified teacher. Meditation, mindfulness, and Buddhism were not intended as medical therapy for those who suffer from mental, social, or emotional disorders. It's always best to work with a therapist or specialized teacher in the field. Currently, there are a growing number of therapists and specialized teachers that can instruct patients in meditation, mindfulness, and Buddhist practice. Lastly, if for any reason you feel vulnerable, unstable, or just a bit down, reach out to others be it family, friends, or professional caregivers. There are so many wonderful people in this world who wish to help others. This brings us to the end of the text. Thank you for listening. I hope this text was both beneficial and inspiring. Please be sure to check out my download library for other free Buddhist study material at TenzinTarpa.com. And just a reminder, if you find my work of value, consider making a donation at my website. Thanks.